Hi, and welcome to Having New Eyes, a podcast to help you look at things differently, to think, to reflect, to ask questions. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. And now here's your hosts, Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Everybody's talking about how the world's gonna end. Welcome everyone to Having New Eyes, episode 10, Autumn in America. Loss of Innocence, our Pearl Harbor. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, and I want America to understand that. That was Vice Admiral Jerome Adams on April 4th, 2020, and here we are at the end of August 2020, and um I have to go back, you know, obviously I I don't remember Pearl Harbor, but I can't really remember anything in the 60s that would even come close to that kind of changing moment. I think of the um, Bobby Kennedy assassination. I was still pretty young. Martin Luther King, I do remember those happening and being covered. The Vietnam War wasn't just an event. It didn't just all of a sudden start and, and come into our lives. But then we did finally see that in the on TV being reported, as Jim, as you mentioned before, embedded uh, uh, reporters in the field. And then in the 70s, we had the, the Watergate hearings broadcasted live, and, and some high school teachers would force students to watch. This is history in the making. You have to watch this. And that had never been done before. But nothing major other than I, that I can remember, other than maybe the space shuttle explosion in, in 1986, we had the AIDS epidemic. That was the closest thing we've come to a pandemic, but it, again, didn't start all at one time, so to speak. And it was only most people thought in a, you know, it was just those people or just gay people that got AIDS. And, it, you know, we were very, very kind of insulated from that, at least in our minds anyway. The Desert Storm came along in the 90s. And yes, that had a specific beginning. I can remember the the restaurant and the uh, okay restaurant bar <laughs> that I was sitting in and then looking up and saying what the heck is that with all the green lights and the waitress saying yeah we just uh, invaded Kuwait and so so that was an event but we run about our lives so to speak even with the Rodney King LA Rice riots and and the OJ Simpson trial Bill Clinton being impeached nothing really changed us or or was something like a Pearl Harbor moment well, and we had Y2K at the end of 1999, but nothing happened. You know, every, you know we, we planned for it. So that big event kind of didn't happen. And then 9-11. And I think that was our moment of, well, you know, nothing's going to be the same. When I walk into an airport, you know, my family can't follow me to the plane. I'm going to have to have all this kind of capacity of saying, okay, I've got to take off my shoes and put my laptop in the bin and do this and be scanned. and it's a different life from then on. So when I think about that, this is our Pearl Harbor moment, I can relate from that standpoint, but I think we're going to get into something a little bit deeper in the, the aspect of, are we really at war here and what are we at war with? And so with that, I'll bring in Jim Jones, our historian extraordinaire Jim, what are what are your thoughts? You lived through a, a lot more, I guess I should say, than than uh, when I came into the world. So, what is your perspective in terms of 
looking at this as our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment? Well, I also lived through a lot of eras musically. And for some reason, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but I can remember Don Henley uh, as a solo artist singing The End of the Innocence. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, but now those skies are threatening. Who knows how long this will last? Now we've come so far so fast. The end of the innocence. You know, we realize, you know what? We are not this country that's impervious to all of the dangers of the world that other countries face. We're vulnerable. We can be hurt. Pearl Harbor showed that. 9-11 reiterated it. I think Pearl Harbor is a good image. Certainly, I have memories. Last week, Floyd Welch died at 99. He was a seaman aboard the USS Oklahoma. And he talks about that day of the attack on Pearl Harbor when he and his shipmates went over to the side of these capsized battleships in the harbor. And they could hear underneath the steel hulls people sailors beating against them because they were trapped underneath. And they called for someone that had the blueprints of the ship so they could figure out how best, what place best to try and weld through so they could get these people out to safety. I mean, it was a very powerful moment emotionally. And at the same time, I also have memories of the National Park, because there's a couple of these national parks that have struck me, like the Battle of the Little Bighorn. If you go to Little Bighorn, you don't see anything right away. You come up over a rise, and then when you get at the top of this hill, you can see exactly how it all played out, even though there's no one there, where Custer was with his small group of soldiers and how the Sioux Indians came riding out of the east. You do the same thing because to go to the USS Arizona Memorial, you go out in a boat, you go out in a launch. There's something dramatic about riding, having to ride in a launch out to this memorial, which basically, when you step into the memorial, you are right above the USS Arizona. You can look down and see the stacks and the full length of the Arizona knowing that there's about 1,100 plus crew still in tune there. So you have this physical evidence that is heart-wrenching to think about. So when Adam says it's like our Pearl Harbor, implying something about an attack, something relating to the war, you know, he said that on April 5th, April 4th, but on March 18th, our president said, I'm the wartime president. On May 6th, he reiterated and he said that the corona is worse than Pearl Harbor and 9-11. So this is all still rolling around about what kind of metaphor we're going to use. And we live so much of our lives with these metaphors. We've used it here. We've talked about this. We brought this up a long time ago. And, you know, I've begun to doubt about that metaphor. I've begun to think about whether or not 
this idea of being at war with corona, like we had the war on drugs and the war on violence and the war against racism and the war on terror and the war on cancer, because metaphors create a certain mentality. You know, in the 2016 film Arrival with Amy Adams, she's a linguist and these alien objects are out in the fields and she is called upon to go out and figure out a way to communicate with them. What she finds out is, is that you have to be very careful about the language that you're using when you communicate with them because everything is about a, a certain context in language. War has that same thing. When you use the metaphor of war, war is about killing. It's about winning. It's about having an enemy. It's about having collateral damage. It's about all of these things, and, and we develop a mentality. So what happens with Amy Adams is, is that she says, you know, if you wanted to teach them our language and you wanted to teach them through talking about chess, in chess there's something about victory and defeat and having an opposition. If you, all you give someone is a hammer, they see everything as a nail. So she's saying we have to have a, a language that eliminates those kind of things, those kinds of images that has about invaders and winners and losers. Because all of a sudden what happens is, is the medical people become warriors in this battle, not scientists or healthcare workers or, or health givers. And that's, that's not the right image for it. You know, I thought about this a lot and I'm saying, well, what's the right metaphor? And I was reading the New York Times book review, and there's a, a book called Evil Geniuses. It says, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. And the title of the article was Hijacking America. And I said, yeah, that works for me. Because for me, the metaphor of, let's say, in 1985, TWA 847, which was hijacked for two weeks, uh, Transworld Airways, flying between Algiers and Beirut, to me, this virus is more like the great hijacker. Because for me, it's like flying on a plane above Earth where we never touch the ground. Well, to tell you the truth, and the soundtrack inside the plane is da 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 It's forever in Agata de Vida <laughs> because we are endlessly stuck with this soundtrack because this virus has hijacked our civility, our good health, our political system, our reason, our, our, our democracy, our education system, our economy, our social lives. It, it, it has hijacked so much of how we live and it's endlessly flying. We're not touching the ground. Now, it might end and like what happens in hijacker with hijackers, Lies might be, might be taken, but we don't know who or when. So I, I've, I've taken to using or thinking about that metaphor. And right now I see our society as being hijacked in many ways. That's an interesting metaphor. And it's, uh, gosh, I, I think we're all just hoping for a, a safe landing. Yes. <laughs> How does this differ from from the war metaphor of what we hear about in World War II is once that happened 
everybody jumped in and became patriotic and what can I do? And I'm either going to fight or I'm going to help build or work in the factory. And there was this sense of unity. But that's, as you just mentioned, that's certainly not the case now. Where is that person that's stepping up and saying, hey, we all have to come together and do ABC or go do this. We have to fight this together, whether you believe it or don't. And it's just not happening. And as you said, we're all, it's, it's affecting so much, but we're also scattered kind of in our approach to how to handle it. That's the whole point with the war metaphor. If we use the war metaphor, we develop a mentality about it. Like I said, to me, you know, the healthcare workers and the scientists, they're the warriors now. Not only that, but think about this. In wars, well, we have collateral damage. Well, you know, the governors that say, well, we know some people are going to die. Or it is what it is when there's, you know, 170,000 plus dead now, and they say we'll have 200,000. Well, it is what it is. But think about this. In a war, we know people are going to die. In fact, we almost expect and want that to occur. We don't want anybody to die in this pandemic. We want people to live. Why couldn't we say, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay at home? But no, we're going to kill it. We're going to destroy it. I mean, the, the, the language is, is, is just... It's just all over in, in, in the language that's not only spoken in the press conferences, but also in the news, because in war, we assign blame. We assign blame. You know, this is not the COVID virus. This is that China virus. It's war. There has to be an enemy. I don't have to be correct about, about this, but if there is anything that has to do with identity, here we go again, back to identity. It's in war, we want to be virile. We want to be strong. We don't want to be impotent. And right now, we can seem like a very impotent country because, as I said before, we've had so many aspects of our lives taken away that we cannot control. And that's the thing that we want to avoid not appearing impotent. In, in some ways, and, and you've talked a little bit about this before, going to war against COVID, it's almost like we're going to war against ourselves. How is that? I guess there's so many questions <laughs> to ask here. How, how can we get at the heart of the matter, so to speak, where we're saying, is there something that we can do differently because this is a different kind of war? Or can we flip the script and say, wait, maybe is this the wrong uh, analogy? Is this the wrong metaphor to use? I, I start to wonder, what is this really you know, revealing about ourselves? What is it uh, showing about America in general? Well, I, I played high school football, and the whole idea was, okay, boys, we're going to go outside. We're going to kill them. Okay, boys, we're going to go out. We're going to destroy them. Okay, boys. You know, it, it was creating the mentality 
of war, a victory, a battle. And the thing about COVID is COVID, this pandemic, this virus doesn't just attack our body. It preys upon and attacks the weaknesses in our society. I was reading about this in a a recent blog uh, just this week in the University of Nottingham. And it was talking about this. And has it preyed upon the weaknesses of society? Oh, you betcha. I mean, I think about the events of the last week because what have we had? The big news in the last week have been the conventions of the major parties, which is already a battle. If you got two, you got me against you. There's already a battle there. So now, as some people would suggest in the news, has the virus, and I believe it, been politicized? Because we want to be the party that finds the vaccine, that helps cure and ends this. We want to be the party that even though we have been declared impotent in so many aspects of our lives because of the COVID, we want to be the party that is going to bring the economy back to life. We're going to revive the education system. But in doing that, again, it wasn't, it isn't enough to just say, so wash your hands, wear your mask, and keep a distance. Now you have to demonize the foes, the enemies. And in politics, you know, you've got both sides of the aisle. Now, that phrase, both sides of the aisle, interesting how that's a phrase that can be used with weddings. Oh, what a joyous event. Unity, people coming together, a marriage between the sides. Or funerals, both sides of the aisle. And in this case, I hate to say it, but we are dealing with a lot of terminology and a lot of ideas and negatives. Just read the paper about the demonizing that goes on of this side and that side and accusations that it's almost like this is a, a funeral for America, the end of the innocence, autumn in America, both literally because it's coming up and also metaphorically. You know, prior to World War II, December 7, 1941, FDR had said in 1940, we want to show patriotism and sacrifice in our country should we be called into a war. And after that happened and there was an actual war that occurred, well, FDR fell into the trap of what happens when you create enemies and you have these fears. And believe me, there's a lot of fears being created because what did we do? We started interning Japanese citizens of the over 100 some odd thousand, 110,000, something like that, that were interned. Two thirds of them were American citizens. But it brought war, this kind con- the, the, the war mentality brought out the negative in us. Now, yes, we had some positive things, the war bonds and people coming together and, you know, the Ford Motor Company making tanks and airplanes and the things that would help us. But this whole idea of fear that is raised either because of the pandemic or because this war mentality 
means that somebody is going to be the other and the enemy. George Santayana, the author, said, when experience is not retained, and we have this example already for what happened in World War II and the internment, turning against different groups of people, in this case, Japanese American citizens. When experience is not retained as among savages, infancy is perpetual. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And we fell into the same trap in World War II. And in many ways, having this war mentality exist is allowing an avenue for us to go back toward that. Because what happens in wars? There is abuse of ethics. We become unethical. Wars are barbaric. They are the antithesis to humanity. Well, there's abuses of power as well. Of course there is. There are many negatives in this. But this whole idea about ethics are going to be abused. There's going to be atrocities. It's going to be barbaric. That, that's why I have real issues with the idea of the, the war metaphor or reading what is spoken in the conventions and just last night, um, this idea of, I mean, this, you know, this is, this is, it's all part of COVID because of what has been taken away, what has been diminished in the United States. So if we can demonize a party and spread it out from COVID into politics, from COVID into economy, from COVID into education, then we, we find ways to create the other and demean them. Well, hold on, Jim. Let me interrupt you because I, I think you're one thing that you're you're talking about that's hitting on just a critical point, and you mentioned it about you have the enemy and you have the other. We're not fighting a war on the coronavirus, or we haven't named the virus as the enemy. And when I say we, I mean every American or the United States as as a whole the each convention and like you said the the political parties are trying to point as you know they're the enemy the other party is the enemy or this group is the enemy or are or the real enemy is but no one's saying the unity uh, uh, speech about hey we're all in this together but the real enemy is the virus we have to stop the virus step one and it just seems like we're we're void of that. That's not in the game because there because there's too much going on. There's too much else at stake. All of these things that you're talking about. That's why the politicization mm -hmm. of Corona has occurred. We have used this. We've again, we've weaponized it. And unfortunately, this is something that is, uh, in my opinion, from what I see degenerating the, this whole idea of working together because we're going to battle the safeguard lines and we're fighting the COVID on every front because somebody wants to be the victor. Is it, is it a political party that wants to be the victor? Is that how it's being portrayed as a battle between the political parties? Now, I'm reading this into the news, but at the same time, 
as I was about to say, in January 1941, when Roosevelt gave his famous Four Freedoms speech, he identified the four universal freedoms as freedom from want, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom from fear. But I see a lot of fear being created, even what I'm reading from the speeches last night about, well, these are the people that are going to move into your neighborhood. Uh, socialism is going to be reestablished. I'm, I'm reading embedded in language, the words that we hear indicate us to us what our emotions might reflect. It's a very useful ploy if you want to quote unquote win. But I am not hearing a whole lot about something that I think is very important. Civic obligation. What's my civic obligation? Because that's what they were talking about after Pearl Harbor. What do we need to sacrifice? What's my civic obligation? There were sacrifices made. People felt obligated to have their victory gardens and to help other people and women to go to work. Again, there was a mentality that I'm ashamed to say has all become politicized, maybe because of the timing of these very important elections coming up. Well, we can't go any further. I, I have to bring it up because right in the middle of the of the news of the conventions this week is uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake seven times in the back by a police officer. And again, we, we've talked about how is that the, the order and disorder of media and how it's captured and how it goes viral and what are the facts and what aren't the facts. But now it's another event that has sparked more discussion, more protest, more violent protest, and now an, an additional two murders, I guess, and another shooting by a 17-year-old with a semi-automatic saying that he's policing the, the uh, protest and the rioting going on in Kenosha. So we have the disorder of that contributing to the narrative of the, of the week. And does that have anything to do with corona? I, you know, I, with coronavirus? I, I don't think so. We still have to respond to it and we still have to find out why does this happen? Why does this keep happening? Or maybe it's happening all the time, but we're finally seeing more and more uh, events or we're seeing more and more actual uh, reports of the of the deal. And, and it's like we're we're there. We're on the scene. We're seeing it happen. We can judge or, judge for ourselves. And of course, there's the uh, again, using the metaphor, here's the war. It's the people who are saying you can't go against all law enforcement and the other side saying, hey, this has been happening for too long. So it's us versus them. But again, like you said, what is our civic obligation? How do we prevent that from happening? So I'll, I'll give a personal example. I see that on the news, I see the video, I see the story, I see the reaction in this from the sports teams boycotting the, the playoffs in the NBA, the NFL team stopping their practices. But then I start to think, 
All right. Here locally in San Antonio, what is the police department doing to monitor or to change or to self-police, if you will, themselves? Some of that is happening. There are, there are some stories. I should have the, the, the details to report. But I think the more important thing that I want to bring out is, on the one hand, you have to be sensitive to what's going on and to be part of the dialogue globally, nationally. But it's not your, your civic, in my opinion, your civic responsibility is not to just retweet with a comment. Your civic responsibility is to ask what is happening locally in my area, in my street, community, voting district, whatever, in my city, in the town that I live in, what is happening? It, are, are we part of the problem? Is there this systemic racism in the law enforcement? Yes, no. What's being done about it? What are, are there the, what are the laws about uh, that uh, keep the police officer from being uh, tried and convicted? Do we have those in, in our town, in my town? And I think our civic obligation comes from, we have to ask questions. We have to become informed about these issues. And that's kind of the war that has to be fought, if you will. The enemy is almost that, that indifference, that, uh, that apathy, that, oh, there's another one that's happening. You know, another shooting by the other one. I mean, there's another shooting. Yeah, it's happened again. Okay, back to, back to what I'm doing. I just don't think we can afford anymore to just go about our lives like, hey, you know, yeah, we just got to stay masked up and and social distance and and uh, hopefully not catch coronavirus and we're good. I, I don't think so. Our emotions have been stripped bare. You know, that's the whole thing about Don Henley, the end of the innocence. We go from you know, the old beautiful for spacious skies that are now being threatened to dipping in, going beneath, going lower because our emotions are raw with what? Frustration because the economy is not working right? From what? Because we can't send our kids back to school or we're going to have to babysit them? You know, one of the uh, oldest. Well, before I talk about the oldest, one of the major themes in literature, which is also a theme in life, at least I see it, goes back to Homer and the Odyssey. The Odyssey is about one of the oldest themes we have in literature, going home. Going home. What is that theme in society today? I think part of it is about what does that mean? Do we want to what go back to the Constitution? Go back to the way it was and school operating just the way it was? Because we don't like this having to do stuff online through Zoom. Is it about inclusion? I mean, we've had 400 years of racism. And if you ask a lot of uh, officers, they, they would say in law enforcement, they would say, no, we're not. We're not racist. Uh, you, you know, these are uh, just events that have happened. They they would uh, uh, isolate them as uh, uh, isolated incidents and everything. But we've had 400 years of it. But still, 
for many of us, they would say like, you know, we talk about the greatest generation of the 40s and 50s. Yeah, greatest generation when women were expected to stay at home and they didn't have any kind of rights and there were still lynchings going on as they are now still uh, uh, among uh, African-Americans. And a lot of people were deprived of their privilege and, and we uh, interned the Japanese. What, what is this? Look at, the, look at the slogan. Let's make America great again. And that's going home. That's going back to it. And now I've heard make America great again, again, go back to it. This whole idea of going home, the, the, the science of archaeology, we study human history by analyzing these sites and these artifacts and digging them up. What are we looking for? We want to look and see how do we go from rural people to forming cities? How, how do we go from hunter-gatherers to farming? I see this again, this whole idea of going home again is how do we build a new home for ourselves here? Because our emotions have been stripped down. There have been these murders that have taken place among law enforcement. How do we build something new when we, we can recognize that, yes, we are a racist, white supremacist society. I like to look over in, in the book review all of the current nonfiction and fiction books that are being read, the top 10. And if you go through the top 10, there's two, except for one, out of the, out of the top 10, there's only one that doesn't go along with this. They're about politics and race. Number one, Live Free or Die, which is a book by uh, Sean Hannity about what is at stake in the 2020 election. What's at stake? Number two is too much and never enough. And it's about how a person's individual life and their family have shaped what our current presidency is about. Number three is caste, about race, about the caste system we have within our own country. We've talked about that as well before. Number four, how to be an anti-racist. Because now all of a sudden I'm told enough, it's not enough to be not racist. You want to be an anti-racist. What the heck is that? Making change is number five. About these social, how social movements evolve through activism. Part of what you're talking about. What do we do to create these type of movements? It's all a lie. Again, a political book. How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, another political book. Number 10, The Room Where It Happened, another political book. The only one that makes it up there that's not about race or politics is number nine. The Answer Is by Alice Trebek. We're interested in Alex Trebek. But, you know, one of the, the, the things that I think uh, I certainly... He's going to ask questions about history. Yeah, so. yeah. well, that, well that's may true. Not, yeah. It may not yeah, be but, so far off. But it's a game show. It, it's a game show. It's a... It's uh, it's safe, you know, but this whole idea of activism and creating activists. There was this guy, Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a Frenchman who came to the United States in 1831 and he traveled all over the United States. And he said, wow, what a country. And he said, the genius of Americans is even though there's rugged individualism. They form alliances. They form groups. He said, that's the real greatness. Because even though there's rugged individualism as an individual, you don't have any power. If you remain ruggedly individualistic, 
it will allow for tyranny to occur because groups could occur that are not good for the country. So what he said was, is, is that Americans have this ability, have shown it over years to overcome their selfish desires and to form these groups which make the country better. It's, it's now there's exceptions, Indians and slavery. <laughs> Seems like slavery with African-Americans and Indians always goes back to it. But it says, when we form these associations, we do things for the welfare of the country. Whether it's the newly, what's formed new, recently with Black Lives Matter. These newest associations by the artists to get together and said, no, we've got to be uh, uh, allowing art to still flow and be able to put it on Zoom, online. No, we've got to be able to create ways in which kids can get education. Let's form pods out in communities where parents can get together. I have personal experience of that. You know, I am very much struck in some ways, maybe not for everybody, how this whole idea of let's go back to some basics that de Tocqueville was talking about. I even hear it in George Floyd. When he's on the ground and his life is being wrenched away from him, he's calling for his mama. I want to go home. I want to go home to my mama. That was, that was a place of safety for me. For me, in the new metaphor that I, I like, I want the plane to land. I want us all to get off. And just like they did when they came back uh, after they had been hostages in, in Vietnam, they came back and, and there were those individuals that kissed the ground. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of raw emotions. But at the same time, I personally, have a sense of what American identity can be. And that's what I'm asking myself, who are we right now? We may not have answers, but I think that we are going back to some of the basic things that we had. And the good thing about this whole idea of in literature and stories is stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And whatever is happening now is probably going to happen again, but we're going to come to a conclusion. I don't know when. I don't know when the plane's going to land. And we will have a chance to go back and build that home again better than we did before. I like this idea of how we're going to reinvent ourselves because we Americans have always reinvented themselves, whether through technology whether through the ways that we taught each other, whether it's through our culture, we reinvent. One of the programs that I watched um, the past week or so uh, had the uh, guest Colin Cowherd from the Herd podcast, but he said something that I thought was kind of prolific in the sense of, you know, we, uh, uh, and I guess this was almost two weeks ago. So they were talking about, you know, ancient history compared to what's going on today, uh, to the, to the issues. But he was, he was saying that, um, you have to be both forgiving and accepting, but also you have to have expectations, but he said it in, 
if we're demanding growth from people, and he used the example of Drew Brees. Drew Brees came out and said, nope, you know, I, I'm for the flag. I don't agree with the protest. And then his teammates talked to him and he said, hey, you know, they opened my eyes. I was wrong. Is He and his wife both said in different ways for what they said in, in, at different times, both of them individually. And he said, that's okay. That's growth. You can't simultaneously demand perfection and expect people to grow. The ability to make mistakes and grow go hand in hand. And too often we want perfection. We want someone to be right all the time. And, and then we can't let them have that space to grow. So something else happened just yesterday. Uh, player of a, I'll, I'll just say Brian Erlacher, the Chicago Bears, my favorite NFL team, came out uh, against the protests and against the uh, uh, people that were protesting the shooting. And he gave some kind of Brett Favre um, uh, uh, analogy when Brett Favre was, uh, when his father died and he played football anyway, and everyone just tore him apart. And even the Chicago Bears distanced themselves from him. So he, or maybe he has it. Has he made a mistake? Will he grow? Will he change? We'll have to see. Maybe uh, uh, the next time uh, we come on the air, we'll have a different story to say about him. Maybe he'll stick to his guns and say, no, that's who I am. But I think that's a good, that's a, that's a nugget that we can take. That's looking at things with new eyes and saying, I don't have to condemn someone right away. I don't have to accept or agree with what they said, but I also don't have to shame them. I also don't have to one-up them. I can at least listen and understand. His teammate, one of his teammates, Matt Forte, came out and responded with that type of, of a quote and a response and, and uh, actually said, you know, I pray for those people or I, you know, it, it, not those people, but I pray for anyone. He didn't call them out by name. He didn't say, you know, you made a mistake. You're, you're, that's it, man. You're, you're done for. No, he accepted what he said, but talked about it or at least responded with the opportunity or an invitation for growth. So how does that, you know, I, I want to tie that into if we're going to be able to go home, if we're going to be able to survive this, if we're going to be able to get to the end of this, I think there has to be that somewhat kind of common ground where we stop fighting a war and we start teaming up together and saying, what, what are the common things that we all agree on and how can we overcome what the virus is doing to our health and, and the medical question? And that in turn will help the economy, that in turn will help the education system, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, uh, I'm not optimistic about that yet. I may have long-term belief about the identity of the United States and who we are, but I do see glimmers some people have more visibility than us. And we look to them, whether it's, you know, John Legend, who's now Zooming and uh, producing art. But it's also very, I think, I find it very interesting, like what Tacitus said, which I've mentioned before, that one of the purposes of history is to rescue the virtuous from oblivion. And I'm wondering who are going to be some of the virtuous 
that will it, that inspired us that we wouldn't expect it because they stepped out of their normal roles. And I think right now, some of the people that have some of the greatest visibility are athletes. And when an athlete says, like Jackie Bradley in Boston, the only black man on the Boston Red Sox, says, I'm not going to play against the Blue Jays. And his team, in support of him, the one versus the many, say, we've got your back. We are also not going to play. I'm seeing this when, uh, you know, the Lakers, the Milwaukee Bucks, other teams are now, they've stood up in other roles and they said, we're African-Americans and this is greater than playing tonight. Now, I, I, I don't want to get all Pollyanna-ish, but Joe, Joe Girardi, who used to be the manager of the Yankees, now the manager uh, of the Phillies, came out and he said, you know, growing up, there were two things I know that, you know, we said you can't live without food and water. But there's two other things that are right now are more important to me, and that's love and hope. Wow. And I thought, go, Joe, my man, Joe. <laughs> I, I, I loved it. And I was thinking, there's, there's Alexis de Tocqueville. You can't be one person in love. You go into a group. There's people included in that. You know, I, I have a, a, a teacher friend at, at a nearby school. And uh, again, something that she did was she's gotten in contact with over 35 countries. And she's going to have her students during the year talk with them about something that we've already included in talking about here today. What does civic obligation mean? You know, are those Israeli students that they're going to talk to say, well, here it means making the sacrifice and going into the military mandatorily because you want to protect your country. In another country, does it mean, well, it, it means over here that you have to spend at least one semester of your college years doing some type of civic project. You know, what does civic obligation mean to people? And I like the idea that this is an international project with many, many schools, including China, including some people that might be, quote, unquote, identified as our enemy currently, in which the youth are going to be talking about this. And I'd like to think that they will find some meaning in about what it means to have a civic obligation to the greater world society. Man, what a beautiful thing that might be. I've still got a little bit of hope. I get chills when I think of that. And, and hopefully maybe some of them could come on our uh, podcast and share their experiences. What, how, uh, how cool that would be. It's just, uh, and I know we're coming to the end here uh, of the episode in the season, but, and, and it feels like once again, we're at the end of an episode and it, uh, I think we did a little bit more than scratch the surface here. I think we, we did a little, a little bit more. We did yeah. a little bit more. We, we got going here today. So I, I want to go back. Love and hope. You know, I, I think it comes down to uh, those two words, maybe. What does it mean to to be an American? Maybe it's it's more about the religious saying of loving your neighbor as yourself. Maybe it's uh, it's looking at Ottoman America and not seeing everything that's wilting and dying, but the changing colors that are blending together to uh, to create a beautiful landscape. 
Maybe it goes back to 57 years ago on August 28th. I have a dream. I'm still dreaming, buddy. I am too. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have lots of, uh, of successes and, uh, and good things to, uh, to talk about in the future. Jim, thank you again. It's been a, a good season, a great season, I think. And uh, I've enjoyed the, the discourse and the dialogue. You're the man, Bob. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you again. Well, there you have it. And we hope you'll be part of this conversation as we share our thoughts and ideas. Our goal, as Jim says, is to make you think. And after you've thought about each topic, reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Having New Eyes Podcast and on Twitter at HNE Podcast. Be sure to use the hashtag Having New Eyes or HNE. You've been listening to Having New Eyes, a podcast by Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Download Having New Eyes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play for Android, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, or on any of your favorite podcast apps. Jim thanks the many students over the decades who were his teachers on a human level. Yes, he was making mental notes. Bob would like to thank his family and the many coaches, teachers, and mentors for the support, encouragement, and inspiration. Find him on Twitter at Bob H. Web Design. Some portions of today's program may have been pre-recorded. Music by Jay Kleiner from the album I Am Me, live from the living room. Stream Jay's music on SoundCloud.com. H&E is recorded in San Antonio, Texas. Audio engineer is Jason Barrera. Executive producer, Bob Hotard. All rights reserved. I'm Becky Steinmetz. Remember, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes.